Well, let's just jump in here to this, like Austin said, this piercing text. Um, so Jonah 4, 1 through 4, I wanted him to read verse 10 just for a little context. Um, but so one of the books that I've actually started and haven't finished, but that's a sort of modern cla- American classic, is called Lost in the Cosmos. It's by a guy who was a medical doctor for 40, for, until he was 40 and then got sick and then sort of changed his course and became a writer after that, uh, Walker Percy, Lost in the Cosmos. And one of the things that he puts forward so cleverly, um, the tone is sort of like the tone of Jonah, actually, now that I think about it, in this book, is that it's just amazing that, and curious and strange, that we can know as humans so much about things outside of us and so much about the universe and so little about ourselves. It talks about how we can know about... um, far-flung galaxies and crab nebula and quasars in the depths of the ocean and and even on a nano level we can know so much about what we can't even see under a mic uh, except with a microscope and and cell structure and dna structure and so on and so forth but so little about my own heart and my own motivations because i have so many blind spots and and somebody can he says somebody can walk in to the room and spend five minutes with you and know more about certain aspects of you than you can. Everybody in the room sees these things, but you're the last one to see them. And that's, that's a strange thing. And it's, it's because, I think we know, um, it's because of sin. It's because part of the effect of sin is that I have these blind spots and I can't see areas in which I'm broken. And that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons that we so emphasize community here at, at Sojourn and really getting to know each other as family and folding our neighbors um, into that, reaching out to others and folding them into that, because it's in community that often people that love me and that I trust can lovingly point things out to me that I need to see that I can't, I can't see. That's one of the beautiful things about marriage, one of the hard things about marriage. Your spouse isn't going anywhere, but, and they love you, but they're saying these things, hey, look at this, we really need to work on this, and hopefully that's the way they say it. <laughs> Sometimes it's not so nice. I know when it's coming from me, it's not, not always so nice. Um, so um, that's one of the reasons we emphasize community. It's also one of the reasons, one of the beautiful things about God's word is that God's word, unlike any other book, it's living and active. It's the very word of God, and it speaks to us in deep places, and it, show, it shows us God, but in showing us God, it also shows us things about ourselves that we would never be able to see. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and puts it on our hearts and shows us things, and that's really what this passage in particular, I think, does for us. It just serves, hopefully, as this big mirror by which we not only see Jonah, not just a window to see how ridiculous this guy is, but how ridiculous we are. Um, so Austin nailed it in his mini-sermon. Let's get into it. Um, three points. Don't always have three points. But today, Jonah's hate-filled heart, the goodness of God, and what right have you to be angry? That pointed short question of God's. Jonah's hate-filled heart, the goodness of God, and then we'll finish with, what, what right have you to be angry? So Jon- Jonah's hate-filled heart. Um, if we're reading Jonah for the first time and don't know anything about the book, and maybe if you're here for the first, this is a series we've stepped in, that you're stepping into perhaps if you're here for the first time. It's a seven-sermon series. The la- next week is the last week of that, so we're in week six. We've walked through the book. Um, but if you're reading it for the first time, um, you would be shocked by these, these four verses um, because the book is written in such a way 
that we basically are made to think that Jonah is running, as soon as he gets the word of God, to go and preach a word of repentance, basically, a word of hope um, to his enemies, the Assyrians, east of him in modern-day Mosul, Iraq, and he's over in Israel. He goes west instead of east. He just flees. And we're made to think that he flees because he's scared, because the Assyrians were bad, bad, warlike, sort of Naziistic people, um, ISIS-like, as we've said. They excelled in killing and in killing in gruesome ways. And so we, we can sort of let Jonah off the hook in that sense. Like, yeah, God called him into the middle of that capital as an enemy of Assyria to go, to go preach God's word and say, you're going you're gonna to die if you don't repent. Um, God's angry with you. That's frightening. So we give him a little bit of grace. But here for the first time, we realize something that should shock us as readers. And that is that Jonah, um, he, isn't, he hasn't been running the whole time away from God's word out of fear, but out of hatred. Because he says, God, I, I, knew, I knew this would happen. I knew you were that compassionate and merciful that you would show mercy on these terrible people. And that just ticks me right off. Kill me now. Just kill me. And we'll get into that. But we, so it, it, it shows that bit of ugliness. And then also, if, if we've just read for the first time, and we talked about this some already, but we can look at how Jonah says, look, when he's running from God and God's chasing him down and causes the sea to be in tumult, um, he says, just throw me in. I'm the reason that, this, that, that God's, that this sea is in this churning uproar. Just throw me in and everything will be fine. So we can think like, man, he's sacrificing himself for the team. He's sacrificing himself to save the lives of these sailors. But here, this passage shows us he actually says, kill me. Just kill me. So there's a sense in which Jonah kind of has a death wish. Like he would rather die than see these people have a chance to hear about this awesome God and this gracious God that he knows. And so it's probably more likely that he said, throw me in the water thinking, I mean, we know that he got swallowed by a fish and saved and spit back on the land. He didn't know that. I mean, if you throw me in the ocean, in the open ocean that's raging, I'm done. He, he thought this was his ticket, again, to not go to Nineveh, but God fooled him. So we, we easily see in this text how ridiculous, petty, childish, and wrong Jonah is in his response to God's good heart. And the book, as I said, is engineered to provoke this sort of response in us that we rightly condemn Jonah. But the genius of this approach with this author is that its, its, its original audience was Israel, Jonah's people, and Israel's enemy was Assyria. She thought the same way Jonah did. And this book almost forces her to see the absurdity of her own position. As she laughs at Jonah, a huge point of the book is for us to realize, for her to realize, Israel, I'm, wait a minute, I'm that ridiculous, I'm that hate-filled. And for us to do the same, um, one commentator says this, Jonah did not want Yahweh to do what was right and proper according to his merciful nature. Instead of showing to Assyria the kind of undeserving favor he had granted to Israel, he should punish the Assyrians without giving them any chance to repent. The book's audience is hardly exempt from such thinking. Here's the, here's the kicker. It is always easier to assume that God is with us more than he is with our enemies. It is always easier to assume that God is with us more than he is with our enemies. 
And we laugh and cry at Jonah only to discover, hopefully, if we let this book do any work on us at all, that we're laughing and crying at ourselves. This book is indeed a big mirror. If we miss this, we almost miss all. Um, so that's a little insight into Jonah's heart. Um, a few other things before we get to point two, the goodness of God, and really camp out on that for a few minutes. Knowing right things, Jonah, Jonah's heart here shows us, and his response here shows us that knowing right things about God is not enough. Knowing God's word is not enough. I can almost assure you that, God, that Jonah knew the Old Testament that had been written that far, the Old Testament minus the latter prophets, um, better than any of us do. And we see that actually in this text, um, but it didn't change his hard heart. He knew the truth, but it hadn't changed him. Um, further digging, I'm quoting here, his own grave verbally, Jonah cites an ancient formulation. It's a creed that is one of the most famous creeds in all of Israel, that God, when he was with Moses in Israel in the desert, Moses said, God, show me what you're really like in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. So in chapter 33, Moses says, God, I just want to see you. And God says, you see me, you die. So not so good. However, here's the deal. I will reveal myself to you, and I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. It's God's self-disclosure. But you're just going to see the back of me. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to put you in this rock. I'm going to cover you so you don't die. And when we see God, what we really see is something we hear. We, we see God with the ear. He tells Moses in chapter 34 of Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, compassionate. And that was, that was known to all Israel. This is a, just a cardinal text. And Jonah really just quotes straight up from that text. I knew you were X, Y, and Z, compassionate, merciful, gracious, slow to, slow to anger, quick to forgive. So he's quoting from the Bible. And yet it hasn't changed his heart at all. And if anything, maybe it's made his heart more hard. More hard. And I want to ask you this morning, and I pray that you could be honest with yourself during this time, and I with myself, to let God do surgery on you. Has the word of God had any of these effects on my heart? Has it made me more proud? More hateful of people that aren't like me? Less merciful and kind? It seems crazy, but again, it's what happened to Jonah, and I want you to ask yourself and ask the Lord and ask his Holy Spirit to show you. I can't do that. I can't point these things out to you, but the Holy Spirit can. Has this happened to me, Lord? The commentator says this. He says, at any rate, by citing this ancient formulation, Jonah confesses eloquently that hoping to see Nineveh destroyed even after he has preached there, he was actually expecting God to suppress his own natural inclination to show mercy whenever possible. It was simply the case that Jonah could not bring himself to appreciate Nineveh. Rather, to a shocking extent, get this, he could not stand God. Because this is what God's like. And I knew you were like this, God. Kill me now. To what degree, if we're honest with ourselves, and Holy Spirit help us to be that way, are we like that? Often memorizing the Bible and pouring over it makes us more hate-filled because in it we miss the mercy of God for us and begin to think that the life of the child of God is about living clean and keeping the rules and God loves me because of certain things I've done. No, um, not at all. We are to see in the Ninevites ourselves. We are to see in Jonah in his hateful heart ourselves. Israel is to see um, in the absurdity 
of uh, Jonah's position herself. Um, none of us deserve God's mercy and compassion and forgiveness any more than the Ninevites did. But thank God that um, he had compassion on them. That's good news for us. There's a passage in, in the Gospels in John 5, toward the end of the chapter in John 5, that um, Jesus is encountering the Pharisees who knew God's word and thought that they loved God's word and lots of them had the whole Old Testament memorized. Try that sometime. But did it make their hearts soft? Did it make their hearts like God's heart? No. Here is God in the flesh standing right next to them, right across from them, face to face, talking to them, and he's saying, you think that, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them is life, and yet it is they that point to me. And I'm right here, and you're, and you're railing against me, and eventually you're going to go crucify me. So knowing God's word is, is not enough. It is good to know God's word, and it ought to lead us to the living God. But if, if that becomes an end, just data crunch, then it often will make us religious and legalistic and hard of heart, as it made Jonah. Having received, another insight, having received God's favor is not enough. Jonah had received God's favor. Israel had received tons of God's favor. Um, as a good Israelite, as Israel's prophet, no less, Jonah is, Jonah had gladly received God's undeserved favor on him. Over and again in the Old Testament, God is clear to say, it's not, I didn't pick you because you're the best or, the, or sinless or, or the most squeaky clean or the most impressive or powerful. In fact, you're the opposite of all those things. You're pretty much the worst. <laughs> you're the most rebellious people I've ever seen and hard, stiff-necked and hard of heart and small, and weak, and puny, but I love you. Not because you're lovely, but because I am. And my love ought to make you lovely. So Jonah should have learned this lesson. I should have learned this lesson, but I'm so prone, as I enjoy the favor of God, to begin to think, oh, I deserve it. And Lord, I just pray that to that, to, to that degree, to whatever degree we're there this morning, you would cut that off and bring repentance um, if we are not glad to give the favor that we've received away to those we fear and hate the most or understand the least to our natural enemies, to those that the world would say, you should hate that person or those people, it is to that degree, friends, that we do not understand the gospel. Because the gospel is that Jesus came, he should have hated us, but instead he came to love us and to lay his life down for us. Another insight, there's a difference between loving God and loving our idea of God. The ironic why behind the statement and the point of the book is that to reject God's prodigal, crazy love, uh, his love to the wretched and hateful people, is actually to reject his love for us. And I hope you've seen that by now. It's actually to reject his love for us because we are that people. That's, that's the only kind of person he loves. <laughs> Um, this is the big surprise that this book invites us into, and it really invites us into it here at this point in the book. In staring at Jonah and laughing at his childishness and crying over his hardness of heart, we are staring at ourselves. We are laughing, as I've said, and weeping at our own image. Um, if it is anything, the book of Jonah is a giant mirror. Do you see yourself in it to any degree? I pray that you do, and if you don't and you're being true to yourself, then praise God. 
Wonderful. But if you do see any of yourself in Jonah, it's not a time for self-condemnation. It's a time to run to Jesus Christ and to confess that before him and to ask him to change you. Um, what sort of feelings arise in your... I'm going to do a little diagnostic, all right? Did some of this last week, but what sort of feelings arise in you instantly when I say the following words? Gay bar. Mosque. Okay, those two are obvious. I, it's obvious why I picked those, because of, in the light of Orlando, right? Gay bar, mosque, murder on death row, child molester, annoying guy at work. Let's take a step down. <laughs> that one hit home more, I think. Annoying guy at work. If some people were here, they'd be like, you're that annoying guy, dude. I know people would say that about me. Um, Jerk who just cut you off on the road. Old blue blazer wearing fuddy-duddy who watches Fox News 24-7. Person who votes for Trump. Person who votes for Hillary. Both of them. Um, Your boss. Your spouse. I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Um, God's heart for all of these people is one of love. Um, the Ninevites were every bit as bad as every single of those that I mentioned, and so is Israel. And so is Israel. Um, until we see that we are in that company and that we are desperate sinners in need of the undeserved favor of the living God, who is good and tender and compassionate and full of love, we kind of just miss the point of the book. So that's, that's Jonah's black heart, his hate-filled heart, and mine. Um, the goodness of God. Let's look at the goodness of God. Um, what Jonah says about God and his petty rant, as I've said in verse 2, is almost a direct quote from Exodus 34, which is just this um, seminal text in Israel's Old Testament. All, every good Israelite knew it. It was God's own self-revelation. His, um, and this is what he says he's like, okay? Um, and, and really what we see is he kind of, in God, is combined the best qualities of a strong, loving, compassionate father and of a tender mother. Uh, he is their source, which is why good moms and good dads are like this. He is their source, undiluted. So first thing is, he says, God, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were gracious in verse, uh, in verse 2. That word gracious, it really just means showing favor. Um, it can be an exchange between humans. Uh, one, one person shows another favor or grace. But when it has to do with God to humans, it's always undeserved. It's always undeserved favor. Um, because what we deserve is punishment. So even moving aside the special grace, the um, atoning, forgiving, cleansing, powerful grace of Jesus Christ for all those who believe, even moving that aside, the common, what theologians call the common grace of God, the sunshine on your skin, waking up and putting two feet on the floor in the morning, breathing, heart pumping, food, anything that is not hell is God's undeserved favor. Um, what we deserve is his full displeasure. What we get is something else. Um, Unless we remain outside of Christ and die. And then in that case, we get what we deserve instead of Christ taking that for us. We'll get to that. Philip Ryken says this. People often say they want God to give them what they deserve. If he were to do that, we would all perish in our sins, Ryken says. But God does something better. On the cross, he gave his son what we deserve. 
hell and gives us what his son deserved, life without end. Another illustration from Riken, he says, Maxie Dunham, don't know who that is. Maxie Dunham tells the story of a woman who took a friend with her and she went to a photographer to have her picture taken. The beauty parlor had done its best for her. She took a seat in the studio and fixed her pose. And while the photographer was adjusting his lights in preparation for taking the shot, she said to him, now be sure to do me justice. The friend who had accompanied her said with a twinkle in her eye, my dear, what you need is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> I don't know how long she remained her friend. We all need friends like that. Speak truth. This is what we all need, Riken writes, not just in front of the camera lens, but before the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. Um, shows favor to... It really um, kind of touches on the sort of favor that people have for their own children. I favor my kids over years, sorry. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, man, there's something in you when your kid cries out in, amidst a din of other noise, amidst a rabble of other children, you know, that's my kid, I'll do anything to go to that child. They're, you favor them because they're yours, not because they're better. In, in a lot of cases, they could be just a lot worse. You favor them because they're yours. And that's the way that God sees us. If we trust in Christ, he sees us as his very own sons and daughters. The very same standing that Christ has before his father, perfection, full pleasure, openness of embrace, you have if you have trusted in Christ. If you wonder about how God feels about you, you just have to ask the question, if I've trusted in Christ, how does he feel about his own precious son? How does he feel about Jesus? He's fully pleased, and therefore he's fully pleased with you. Um, so that's favor. And mercy, John is, Jonah goes on to say, I knew that you were gracious, I knew that you were merciful. One translation has tender mercy. Translates this term with tender mercy. And that's a great translation because really this word is, uh, come, is related to the word that means the womb of a woman where babies grow until um, they're born. A safe place. The most tender place probably in the human body. The place of greatest safety and warmth. Um, this word merciful comes from that word, and it really speaks to God as being a God of compassion. There's this verse at the end of the Bible, in the second to last chapter, Revelation 21, it says, it's this tender picture, and it conveys this, I think, compassion of God. It says that he will wipe in the end when we are with him face to face, we who have trusted in Christ and not in ourselves, but in his work for us, in his death for us in our place. He will take us to himself, and it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the pain he uses to apply tenderness of touch and feeling to us for every single tear we have cried. Um, this is our God. This is the God that Jonah knows he worships and that he has received favor from. And this is how God discloses himself 
to Moses. And this is the God that we see come on the scene to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Philip Reichen, again, he was on fire. He said, um, he said, once when my wife Lisa and I were teaching a pre-marriage class in our home, our two-year-old son came walking down the stairs. It was long after his bedtime, so I said, so I said rather disapprovingly, even though I was quoting from Dr. Seuss, which he didn't know, of course, you should not be here, you should not be about. A look of distress and dismay crossed his face, and his eyes began to fill with tears. I'm wet, he whimpered. That's perfect. Mommy, I love that. Perfectly placed. Thanks, kid. Um, By the way, I love family worship. Never feel like I love the sounds. Just keep it coming. Immediately, I went to pick up my son, says Riken. I held him in my arms and told him everything would be okay. However, imperfectly, this was something like the sympathy of God, the compassion of God, who sees what his children need and is drawn to help them. God is a God who's full of compassion. It also says, God also says, and Jonah quotes this, that he is a God who is slow to anger. Literally, that word in the Hebrew, that phrase means he's long in the nostrils. Strange. Or long in the nose. And what that means is often when it says that God got angry, of course, always righteously and with good reason, we ought to get angry when we see injustice and we see someone getting abused. If we don't, it's a sign of our unrighteousness. So God gets angry at sin because it's destroying his creation quite often. And when he gets angry, it literally, the Hebrew often says his nose gets hot. Hebrew is a very concrete pictorial language. Um, and so to be long in the nose, is, is to, it, it takes a long time for your nose to get hot. Don't think Pinocchio. Think it takes a long time for your nose. You're patient. The, the King James translates this often as long-suffering. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But John McKay, a theologian, says this, He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. We see that here. But he's not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. There's this, um, the Psalms are the songbook kind of in the middle of the Bible. They're the Bible's only songbook. We often sing from them. And the people of God have sung from them for 3,000 years now. Chewbacca. Chewbacca. there are two psalms that open that songbook, and the two psalms are Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 2 is to be read with Psalm 1. I'll preach on that someday. Um, but the end of Psalm, the frame, the end of the frame of, of, the, of this psalm, Psalm 2, in verse 12, it says, kiss the son, okay? This is the opening to the songbook of God's people. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is what? Quickly kindled. Okay, that seems different from long-suffering, from being long in the nose, as it were. Well, what's the deal? Well, um, when God, there's only, like John McKay said, there, God, there is a time at which he will decisively punish sin. He hates injustice. That's really what that's conveying. Um, and he is going to end evil, and he is going to punish sin. But now is the time for repentance. Now is the time for God's patience. Now is the time to come to Christ and to understand that he was punished in our place. But that time will not be forever. 
And so now is the time. Now, today is the day of salvation. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever you're telling your friend the gospel in whatever way, something of that ought to be conveyed. Because the door will eventually close. Every sin will be punished, my systematics professor would often remind us. The only question is this. Will you pay for that sin, because God is just and it must be paid for, or will Christ? And if you trust in Christ, rest assured he has paid for every single sin that you've ever committed or will commit. And that's not a license to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6. It's freedom. It's freedom to obey God from the heart, no longer trying to measure up, knowing that Christ has for me. It's freedom to live a life of gratitude and peace, inviting others into that. Others that don't know that kind of peace. They're just tied up in knots to a guilt that they don't understand and a terror that they don't understand. Thirdly, and finally, what right have you to be angry? We've looked at Jonah's black heart and God and his goodness in juxtaposition. Finally, God says to Jonah this pointed question that he issues. What right have you to be angry? What a great question, if we just let that land. What right have you to be angry? Three simple words in the Hebrew, a very economic language, that conclude this section forcefully and serve the didactic point of the narrator admirably. Okay, that was a quote. I didn't say that. Jonah is angry, but without merit. Um, some things we can glean from this. One, we have no right to be angry when God shows mercy to someone else. Just like Jonah. As ridiculous as it obviously is with Jonah. Because what has he done? He has just run from God in total disobedience, not only as an Israelite who has received God's promises, but as a prophet, as a, as a chosen special instrument of God. He's just run in disobedience. Rather than being destroyed as he should have been, God saves him. And yet he wants the destruction rather than the salvation of this people that he's just preached to. Secondly, so we have no right to be angry when God shows mercy to anyone. But secondly, God has every right to be angry. Again, look at Jonah in being swallowed by the ocean and then by a fish. He should have died twice. God used something that should have killed Jonah to save him. And look at Israel, to whom this line where, where Jonah says, I knew you were merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Look at Israel in the context where God reveals himself as such to Israel in Exodus 34. What is the context of Exodus 34 when Moses says, show me yourself, what's happening? Well, right before that, in Exodus 32, Israel has just, Moses had gone up previous to that to get the law on the Mount of Sinai from God. God has previous to that just saved Israel out of Egypt and brought her through the Red Sea, through a mighty works of power. And the first thing Israel does in chapter 32, once Moses goes up to get the law, is they're like, man, where's Moses? I don't know. He's been gone for a few days. Let's throw a party and worship some idols. Hey, Aaron, make us one. Make it a cow. And so they are so quick to rebel against God. God, his reaction is, okay, Moses, move aside. I'll destroy Israel. And uh, I'll make a new people out of you. It's no problem. Get out of my way. And what does Moses do? He says, God, no. 
And God allows us to see, see that and even says those sorts of things, I believe, to show us that we need a mediator. We need someone to come between us and God, who in his justice and righteousness has to punish our sin. The only way we can live is to have someone that doesn't deserve to die to step between us and to take the hit. Moses does that. It's the only reason Israel exists. And Israel knows that, which is why I think one of the reasons Israel loves Moses. He's the man. Well, that's obvious why he stepped, but he's the reason they are still alive. We have a greater than Moses. We are just as guilty as Israel. We are just as guilty as Jonah. We are just as guilty as Nineveh. I, Francis Schaeffer talks about having a, 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 an invisible recorder around our necks that records not just our words, but our actions and our thoughts. If we played that recorder, if I played that recorder here for you just from last week, I would have to step down in shame from this pulpit and probably never come back because I am a hateful, proud, lust-filled, just-keep-going person. And that's just me with three seconds. Each one of us, none of us would be able to escape. And that's just us looking at ourselves with our own sense of what we know to be right and wrong. God cannot look upon any sin. He can't countenance it. He's too good. He can't let it go. Why God is not angry. God is not angry um, with Jonah, with Nineveh, allowing them to repent and to return. Allowing Jonah probably to write this book without destroying him, as we'll see in this sermon next week that closes the book, or with Israel, um, whom he allowed to live, and he showed himself to Moses and thus to Israel and continued to favor Israel, um, because he's not angry with us because of Jesus Christ. Um, there's this wonderful, it's my favorite passage in the Bible, probably aside from maybe Revelation 4 and 5. In Romans, Paul has been, in the book of Romans, the church, he writes, writes this letter to the church in Rome, and he spends the first couple chapters basically just piling it on, kind of like I've done with this sermon. Just, here's why we deserve the just punishment of God. God, we don't want our God to be a mamby-pamby, and guess what? He's not. He won't let sin go. That's really bad news for me. Once I realize, that means he has to punish me. There's no escape. Jew, Gentile. We're, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's where Paul ends up in Romans 3.20. And then in 3.21, he turns this glorious corner, and he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Although the law and the prophets attest to it, it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. He has kept the law perfectly from the heart for us, and he has died the death of a lawbreaker for us in our place. And he gets to, to the end of that passage, and he, and he assures us that the life and death of Jesus did two things for us and showed us two things about God. The cross of Christ shows us. The fact that Christ died for me and for anyone who will trust in him shows us that God is both just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus Christ. So he's just. He must punish sin. We often look at the cross and think, God's so loving. Look at what he did for me. And that's true. But the cross should also remind us every time we think about it that God will not let sin go. 
he punished his son in our place and poured out his full wrath against our sin on his son so that he, would, he could just show us the, his complete favor. And also, it shows us not only that he's just, but that he's the justifier. He makes righteous and perfect and considers righteous and perfect any person, no matter how black and how hate-filled in their hearts, who will come to Jesus Christ and say, I am a sinner. I deserve what you got, Jesus. It's why you died. I trust in you, not myself. God will justify that person. That's a fact. Um, this realization alone will make our hearts burn to see others saved. Once I really, the more I really identify with Jonah and really believe, and once I identify with the Ninevites, I deserve what they should have gotten. I deserve what Jonah, I should have been drowned in the sea of God's wrath, but Jesus was in my place. The more I truly believe that, and it's not just lip service, the more that gospel penny drops, the more I will yearn to see others snatched from the fire and saved into the love of Christ. So I, again, I think about the gay bar. I think about the mosque. I think about the murder on death row, the child molester, the annoying guy at work, the jerk who cuts you off on the road, um, the uber conservative, the uber liberal, um, your boss, in your bad moments, your spouse. Um, thinking about them in the way that these verses help us to. Understanding that we are Jonah and repenting of that. And knowing that it's very good news that this is the way that God is. Um, very good news for me will change us, I pray, um, and help us to reach out to those that also don't deserve to be saved. Let me tell you, friend, about this wonderful news. Let me tell you about how sinful I am, but how God has taken my sin upon himself. Let me tell you. Nobody is beneath us anymore. Nobody's at arm's length anymore. There's no circle that I'm not willing and wanting to go into that all changes. All of it changes. Let me pray.